Well, good morning, church. That's pretty good. Um, I am excited because we're starting a new series this morning called Why We Love the Church. And, um, hey, Tegan. And the reason that we're doing that is because, uh, <laughs> sorry, I got distracted. Um, the reason that we're doing this series is because we think it's important sometimes to stop and talk about the importance of the church, of the local church, of why we're here at all and why this matters. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to go there eventually, eventually. Now Matt's waving at me. Matt gets really excited just when he sees me up here. Um, there's this question that a lot of people ask, right? Uh, nowadays, they've always asked, but you hear people asking this quite a bit. And the question really is, do we really need the church? Does the church matter as much anymore? Is the church relevant anymore? And this is a big question. Many of us, many of you maybe, have grown up in the church your whole lives. You've always been to church. And so to you, you're like, I've never asked that question or thought that. In fact, if there wasn't church on a Sunday morning, I don't even know what I would do. But many of you have asked that question and you've wondered that. There are many people inside and outside the church who continue to wonder why we really need this anymore. And we can feel a couple of different ways about the church when we begin to doubt it. One is that we can feel skeptical and cynical. We can, we can wonder and question, are we really doing anything of value anymore in the world? Or we can become ambivalent towards the church. We can become apathetic towards it and just kind of think does it really matter anymore? I mean, even if you, uh, we live in a day and age in which uh, to have a personal relationship with Jesus, could you not just listen to some podcasts online, read some books written by some very gifted pastors and leaders, and listen to worship music that is probably of higher quality than what you can experience in most churches? Uh, you could pray on your own. You could meet with some close Christian friends, maybe that you've had for your whole life. Who needs the church in a world when we have those things available to us? Who has the time to be a part of the church when it's always demanding so much from you and asking you to be a part of things and even simply come on one of the very few days that you have to yourself, to your family, to just be off and to relax and to, to rest, right? Uh, people get cynical or skeptical towards the church asking the question, can it really make a difference in the world anymore because maybe it doesn't seem like it is. Maybe you look at the church and you go, I don't see it transforming people the way that it's supposed to. I don't see it transforming my own family the way that I would want to see it, it, it doing that. And so is the church really the place that God wants to use for those things to happen? Does it really change lives? Is God really alive in it? Or you think back historically and you go, am I proud of what the church is and where the church has come from? Or do I find myself often saying, you know, oh, we're not the, it's not the same church it used to be. Or, oh, well, those things that happened, you know, that was a, you know, a bad time. Don't worry about that. Or we feel that we often have to, you know, give disclaimers and, and, and try to defend maybe what the church is to people who are skeptical that it's any good or that it's any value. People that ask the question, is the church loving? Is it a place of love? Is it a place of caring for people? And often wondering if that's true. Sometimes we look at the church and we say, I can't use my gifts in the church. 
I can't be who I want to be in the church. And so, no, I don't think the church matters that much. I don't think it needs to be a big part of my life. Some of us look at the theology of the church and say, of oh, thousands of years, people have been arguing and debating and studying all these things down to minutia, and sometimes they merge together, sometimes they split off, and, and how much does that stuff even really matter, and does it even reflect what Jesus really set out to do when he form the church? Is it really something that matters? The theology, the history, all these things. Has the church reached all the people that it's going to reach? And can it reach people anymore? Because it seems like even when we talk about evangelism, we talk about how it seems like the church's ability to do that seems to be diminishing each day in the country we live in. We're talking about this idea of why we love the church because the church matters but it's often easy to be discouraged about the church. And one of the analogies that we'll use as we talk about this through this series over the next six weeks is the analogy of a marriage, or the example of a marriage, really. Uh, The fact that in a marriage, you have these two people who are called to give of themselves for the other. And in doing that, they benefit, and their marriage grows and becomes stronger. Um, and the church is like that in that it is, a, it is an institution that God brings together. It's a group of people God brings together, and he says it's important and it matters. We talked about this last week when we talked about the Great Commission. Jesus calls the disciples and he says, here's what I want you to do. I'm not going to be the one doing it anymore. And they're like, what? And then he says, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will empower you, and you'll be, so, you'll be so filled with the Holy Spirit and so empowered that you can do even more than what I did. Together, the church. The church matters. The church is important. We ask this question, is the church relevant? And the answer to the question is yes, the church is. And it does matter. Matters more now than it ever has before. And we're doing this series to talk about why it's important and why we love it. This gathering that we have here, this local people, this this local church, this group that we have, this family. We're talking about this now because, in part, things are good here. We celebrated 10 baptisms last week, which was an awesome thing, and it ended with People jumping in a pool, doing cannonballs, which is an awesome thing. Um, I didn't see it coming, but it happened. Uh, we, you know, we're, things are great here, right? We have a youth pastor just handing out free pizzas like some kind of a, like some kind of a rich king, right? Just throwing them out, right? Uh, belly flop, here you go, belly flop, here's a pizza, right? Who else wants one? Wayne Shock did like nine belly flops and is just pink. He was completely pink by the end of it. And believe it or not, even with the pizza budget, we have all the money that we need to do what God's called us to do for yet another year. Well, we'll see, you know, yeah. It's better be like Little Caesars, you know. Um, We have yet again the money that we need to do the things that we are called to do as a church. We have a sense of family and of unity. We're not going through tremendous strife and pain and struggle as a church or division. Uh, This is a time uh, that is good, I think, in the life of the church. And so this is the time to talk about why this is important, what we have here, and why God says, I want it to be a certain way, and I want to use all of you as a group a certain way. But one of the things that we know is true of the church is this. While it is incredibly important, it is also comprised of and made up of a bunch of sinful people. You may not know that, but it's true. 
We're sinners. Now, we're saved by grace if we're followers of Jesus, and that gives us the status of being a saint. But ultimately, we still struggle to live in the flesh with sinful hearts. And so because of that, we're a room full of sinners. And churches actually get the most off track when they stop believing that, when they start thinking that their leaders are better than other people or more trustworthy than others or above sin somehow, or when a group of people starts to get that sort of sense about them that they're better, that they've fixed themselves, that they've arrived, right? We know that that is one of the first things that leads to hypocrisy, which was the thing that Jesus seemed to speak to, uh, speak against the most in his ministry, We know that the church is made up of people who have a tendency to sin. We are incredibly predictable in that way. And so you get a group of people together, you say they have to make this thing work, just like in a marriage, and you say they're both going to be sinful people, you know that it's not going to be easy and that it will be a big mess, because that's what happens. My wife was talking to somebody in her wow group this week, and it was a mom, she's in the first service, Michelle, and she was saying... That there's this thing that she does every time she goes to Winco. I'm going to give, use a visual aid here. She said every time she goes to Winco, she walks in with her kids in the cart, and right there at the entrance is this huge display. Of cheese balls. See that? See how excited he is? A huge display of cheese balls. OK? You can just hang on, you can have one. Just. And, and they're right there, this huge, giant pyramid wall of cheese balls, okay? And our kids see them, and they get so excited, and they go, please, we want to have cheese balls. Please, 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 please give us cheese balls. And every time, she, she takes one, and she puts it in the cart, because she knows that at some point while they're shopping, they're going to get in trouble. And then all she does is she says, oh, you lost the cheese balls. And she takes them out of the cart, and then they never, ever get the cheese balls. Is that not brilliant, Right? <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, exactly. We, we, we gave her a standing ovation, I think, in the first service. That is brilliant parenting because she knows predictably, her kids are predictable. She knows that they will screw up while they're at Winco and they will not earn the cheese balls. And we know that this is true of people. Okay, here, I'm going to give Tegan a cheese ball. Come here, Tegan. Here, here. I told him I would give him one. I'm not going to throw it. Get it in your mouth. Are you kidding me? We're going to use these for communion later. We've decided. (laughs) How awesome would that be, right? Attendance would double. That church uses cheese balls for communion. I think they are gluten-free. You're welcome. There is nothing more predictable than this. The fact that, like, we know... We know what we're capable of as people, and we know that when you get a group of us together, it gets even messier. And so how in the world do you make this thing work? Well, the way you make it work is this. You say the number one priority, according to Paul, who gives a lot of advice on the church, is that we are to remain unified, we have unity together, and we treat each other with love. Paul says that we are like a husband and wife sharing the same household. And what he says in Ephesians about husbands and wives is he says that they are to treat each other a certain way because if they don't, they're literally harming themselves. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting your own household if you don't take care of this thing. 
And it's the same way in, in the church. I want to read you something out of Ephesians where Paul says this. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So that is the church. It is built on this foundation and you're a household. And what that means is that if we can't love one another well, we hurt ourselves because we, we harm the very household that we live in. You don't get more than one household. You have the household you have. And that's why you have to take care of it. And so Paul calls us to love. And we read about this in 1 Corinthians 13, if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 13 is a passage that we read more than anywhere in weddings. We read it in weddings because we like talking about love and weddings. And the other thing we really like doing in weddings is going into great detail about how big this commitment is going to be between these two people. So we like going into detail about love, about all the different facets and components of really good love. But Paul isn't writing this to people at a wedding. He isn't writing this to somebody giving him advice with a girl. Uh, he's writing this to the church about how they are supposed to treat each other. The place where Paul goes the most, goes into the greatest detail about what love looks like is to the church, saying to them, here's how you are to be. And he says in the first three verses this, if I speak in tongues, in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What Paul is doing here is he is describing all of the things that you would look at a pastor or a leader and want them to be good at. You'd want them to be good at prophecy, which is the teaching of the word. But he says, if I, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. To speak in tongues literally just meant to speak from God directly. To speak to the people and say, these words are the words of God, of angels. And at the time, in pagan rituals and ceremonies, they incorporated lots of gongs and cymbals. And so that was the sound that you associated with a pagan ceremony. And so he says, I could be speaking directly from God himself, but if I don't have love in my heart while I do it, I may as well be speaking the words of a pagan ceremony somewhere, because I will get nothing out of it. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, this is the teaching aspect of what ministry looks like. He says, I could, I could remind you of what God says in his word again and again in a way to help you. I can understand the mysteries, the very things that we get stumped on and we go, how in the world is that even possible that we read about in scripture? And knowledge, the things that only can come from the mind of God and that he can impart to us to tell us about the way the world is and the way that we are. I could have all of those things to such a degree that you would be blown away by them, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. He says, I could have faith to remove mountains, which is like a passionate zeal for Jesus. This is the person who sells everything that they have and is constantly on fire for God. And people look at and say, if only I could make the kinds of risky decisions and, and, and choices that they make out of their faith, I would have faith that could move mountains. And he says, I could have that. But if I don't have love in my heart, I have nothing. 
Paul is using himself an example of a leader, and he's saying that we can do all of these things, but if I don't love people, if I don't love God, then nobody should listen to me or follow me. He says, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, if I am a martyr, if I give up absolutely everything but have not love, he said, I gain nothing. Notice he doesn't say the church gains nothing or that nothing happens because God can use messed up, flawed people with wrong motives, and he does it all the time to advance the kingdom. But Paul says, if I am going to be a part of the church and I'm going to try and do the best job I can of all the things that we seem to care so much about in the church, but I don't have love, I gain nothing from it. Without love, it's nothing. And what this means is important. It means that the size of our building doesn't matter. It means that the, the, the quality of our teaching doesn't matter. It means that the, the size of our bank account doesn't matter. It means the quality of our, our music doesn't matter. It means the, the, the selection and the quality of our programs doesn't matter. If there is no love, he says those things don't matter. Those are all the things that we look for in a good church. He's, he's, this is a church shopper list right here. You could open up 1 Corinthians and be like, how do we find a new church? Well, that, 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 and that. Let's go for those. And he says, you could have all of those things. And people could even be attracted to those things. But without love, it's nothing. This is another example of what I would call Paul having really bad math, right? The math of Paul never makes any sense, right? Paul math is like, you have this, you have what you need, your brother, you give some to him, then he has what he needs, but now somehow you still have what you need. That doesn't make sense, right? That's the math of Paul, never makes sense, right? It just confuses kids and stuff. The math of Paul here is very simple. You line up all of this amazing stuff. Look at all of these things that I would be proud of. Minus love equals nothing. You have nothing if you take love out of that. Now he's talking about himself as a leader, but this is true of every single person. You look at all of the things that we do that we're proud of, that Christians do that we're proud of, that we, that we, that we think matter because we look at ourselves in the church and other people look at us and they, and they like what they see. And he says, without love, those things don't matter. That place, that, that work that's being done, it is not what you think it is. A couple of years ago, I missed, and I'm glad that I missed this, but I missed something that the church affectionately refers to as Sewer Sunday. Um, and if you were here for Sewer Sunday, uh, well, you probably weren't because they didn't have church on Sewer Sunday. Uh, on Sewer Sunday, the sewer backed up in the basement and it began to flood. And uh, we had quite an emergency on our hands. We had people here, plumbers, trustees, people here digging things up, trying to stop this, trying to bail out the water. And we went ahead and made, they went ahead and made the very smart decision of saying, let's go ahead and not have church on Sewer Sunday because it's Sewer Sunday, okay? And so they sent everybody out and said, now's a great chance to go visit some other churches and uh, bring somebody back with you. No, just kidding, they didn't say that. Um, a good idea though, huh? No. So you think about coming to visit a church on Sewer Sunday, right? You think about, you know, all the stuff that they might have that might make them a nice church. You know, minus that one little detail that they have sewage backing up in their basement and you can smell it and you can see it. And uh, no, that would, that would completely ruin the experience that you would have. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you could have all of these great things. We could have all these great things that we boast about. But if we don't have love, we are a church that is filling up with sewage, 
And the aroma of that place, the look of that place is disgusting. It is the most unappealing thing that you could imagine. That is what it is to be a place, to be a person, a group of people that have all these things that we might look at and be proud of in the church, but not have love behind those things. This church is one that I'm glad that I can say I have experienced a lot of love in this church. In fact, I've often told people that when I first visited the church secretly, I came with my friend and, and I sat right over here in the first service and uh, I sat right behind, I sat a couple rows behind um, Gene Garut and he was, he was praying in the prayer time. And what he was praying for in the prayer time was the new lead pastor. And uh, he was praying for whoever this man might be and praying for his family. And the whole church was praying for whatever God was doing in their life. And I remember him saying, you must be doing some pretty big or crazy things in order to bring somebody to a point of, of becoming a new lead pastor somewhere else. That's a lot of transition to go through as a person, as a family. And I'm sitting there like four rows back thinking like, ah, he might be talking about me. That's so weird. And, and, and. To have someone praying those things about a person, not, not about themselves, not about us as a church and what we want, but about this person and what God's doing in their life. And then after the service ended, this lady named Yvonne Stewart was sitting across the aisle from me. She's 94, and she grabbed me. She grabbed me, and she made me walk her out. She made me walk her out, and she uh, started talking to me immediately about how much she loved her church, and she started telling me about her husband who had passed away a few years ago, and she was crying, and she started talking about how the church had been there for her. You could tell that five years ago when her husband died that that was the most heartbreaking thing for her and that this has been really hard since. And she said, this church is like my family. They've gotten me through it. They've been there for me, everybody. And then she said, it's so nice to have such a nice young, I think she said handsome, have a nice young handsome man <laughs> visiting our church. I, I'm so glad to see you here and, I, and I'm glad that you're here. And she gave me a big hug and, and, uh, and she wears a lot of perfume so that I smelled like, um, like Yvonne Stewart afterwards. I had the aroma you know, of love right afterwards. And I was, I, when I came here, I experienced like a very loving uh, group of people. And, 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 and it wasn't something I had experienced everywhere that I had been. And I was talking to, to, to Pastor Tom um, as I started as lead pastor. And when, when we got together and talked about the church and what mattered to him, the time that he got the most passionate that you could see the most angst in him, that he was the most stirred up and emotional was when he started talking about the idea that a person would ever be suffering or going through a hard time in his church and that they wouldn't be met by another member of the body, that they wouldn't experience love. It wasn't, it wasn't about any of the stuff that Paul's talking about that he could be good at. It was love. He said, I, I just, the idea that this is a place where people are genuinely loved, that we, that we live love. It's almost like that was a, that was kind of a, thing that you guys said. As I got to know people in the city, you know, I'd be getting my hair cut and I'd tell somebody where I work and, and they would tell me that they had been here or heard of this place and it was always in a good way and it was always associated with the idea of treating people well and being loving towards them. And I was talking with Pastor Dave about this this week and I was saying, I have learned more about how to love from you, Dave, and from Tom um, than, than I ever knew before. And he said, well, it didn't start there. He said it started all the way back with this guy, like Ken Coth, who was this pastor, who was this really loving guy. And then after him, there was this guy named Jim 
Marshall, and, and he was a very loving pastor. And that was important to him, the way that people were treated. And then Bill Vermillion was the same way. And then Tom was the same way. And these guys, like, like leader, pastor after pastor, genuinely cared that this be a place where people were loved, that this be a family, that, that what Paul's saying here would be important. And you can see it, you can experience it, you can feel it. And as I was, I was writing this part of my message, I was thinking about Yvonne, and I was actually writing her name down into my message. I was thinking to myself, I haven't seen Yvonne in a while because she fell a few weeks ago, and she's been in, she was in the hospital over Christmas, and, and now she lives in kind of a, kind of a retirement home community in Tualatin, uh, and, uh, and I haven't seen her since she's been there. And I thought, I'm, I'm reading these words of Paul that say I could give good sermons, and, but if I don't love, then what does it mean? And I close my computer, and I go to Dave's office because I have a rule. I try to do everything I can with Dave because he's my favorite person in the world, and I want to spend all my time with him. And, uh, and I'm like, can Dave come over for dinner? You know, chicken and stovetop, Dave's going to come over. No, it's not that bad, but still. I said, Dave, can we go? Do you want to go see Yvonne? And he said, of course I want to go see Yvonne. So we got in the car, and we drove, and we went and visited Yvonne for a while. And it was wonderful to get to spend time with her and to get to see her and to see how things were going. And she really, really, really had missed the church. And what was also wonderful was to hear that we weren't the first people from the church that had gone to see her, that several people from the church had gone to visit her out of the goodness of their heart. And I recognized, as this was talking to Dave as we were leaving Yvonne's and we were coming back, I said, Dave, I'm not very good at loving people. I'm not. I, I wasn't taught how to do that. And when it came to ministry, I was taught all of the things that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Those are the things that they taught me. And I realized the place where you learn to love people isn't in seminary, and it isn't in a school, and it isn't in a classroom, it isn't by reading a book. It's here. This is where we learn what it looks like to love one another. We learn it here. And I've learned it from people usually who are older than me. Now, you know, not all old people are loving, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, you know, there's a couple that are a little, a little, little you know, little, you know, but, <laughs> I can't find a word fast enough. But I, I look at, God, I look at people who have, who have lived more life than me and have loved well and, and show me how important that is and what that looks like. And that's exactly the reason why the church can't just be a bunch of young people or a bunch of old people, but it has to be everybody because otherwise you can't learn things from each other the way that you're really meant to. I've learned, and I have to admit that I have a long way to go, that it's not something that naturally I'm inclined to do. I wouldn't get unsettled and frustrated and, and angsty about the same things that Pastor Tom would, but I want to when I'm his age. I want to say that that's true of me. Hopefully sooner, I guess, but I'll take it. I'll take when I'm his age, easily. Love is a physical thing. It's what we do for one another. It has hands and it feet and it has eyes and a nose and has freckles in my case listens and it talks and it gives time and it sometimes is wrong and that's okay and and when it's right it's willing to not be right all the time and the question that I have is this for all of you is it possible that you have allowed love to fall into the background at some point is it possible that you've allowed love to fall back and assume that your talents your gifts your knowledge your maturity your life experience or being relevant that you've allowed any of those things to supplant 
the love that is supposed to really characterize you. You are supposed to be known by love. Not knowledge and wisdom and prophecy and not maturity and age and all those things. You're supposed to be known by love because we're supposed to be known by love. And have you allowed that to take the back seat to some of these other things that might be more impressive to other people, that might be more enjoyable to build your identity on, but that aren't love? Paul describes love. He goes on to describe it in detail. And he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I've been talking to our kids about this, kind of teaching it to them. It's a really helpful thing to talk about, you know, love being all these things when you're living in a household with a bunch of people. We're sticking to the first one until we get it down. And then when Tegan's like 40, we're going to move on to kind, you know. One cheese ball at a time. That's right. <laughs> He's like, I heard my name. You've got to listen the whole time or else you won't know. When he says love is patient and kind, these words in the Greek directly relate to people, not things. He's saying love is patient, not with circumstances, but with people. Do you know why that's so hard? to be patient and kind with people instead of just circumstances, to say, I'm just going to accept the circumstance of my life. Because most of us have had to accept that we can't change circumstances. And most of us are under the illusion that we can change people. We're like, I'm really frustrated with this person. I don't know how to be patient with them. And I don't know how to be kind towards them because if they would just change, then I wouldn't have to be patient with them. And I wouldn't have to be kind with them. And everybody would be happier because they would be different. We can't do that about circumstances, but we can want that for people, it seems. And so it's hard for us to be patient and kind with one another. But Paul says the first thing that characterizes love in the church is being patient with people and saying, I will be kind with you. I'm amazed when I see my kids playing with their friends how easy it is for them to not be patient and kind with each other and to just accept that from one another. They're like... We don't have a lot of options. We're six, you know? This is the best we're going to do. And so we're going to be nice, and then for 10 minutes, we're going to be really mean to each other. And then we're going to go back to being nice, and we're going to ask to play together again somehow. That's a hard thing to understand how that works. But this is often how the church functions. Oh, we'll just be mean to each other for a while. Okay, now we'll be nice again because we want things to be good. And we'll be mean to each other. We want to be nice again because we want things to be good. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It treats people with kindness which is one of the hardest things to try to do. Love does not envy or boast. And these are two sides of the same coin. Love is not a person, it's not a person saying, here's all the good things I have. Let me constantly talk about what I have and how good things are and how grateful, thankful and grateful I am for all the things that I have. So I'm gonna talk about it all the time, right? That's, if I use those words, it's okay. And boast and boast and boast about these things. And we're not gonna be envious either. Because we have to accept the fact that in life we will constantly find ourselves around people who have more than we do and who have things that we wish we had and circumstances that we wish we had. And if we will allow envy into our heart at any point, it will eat us up from within because there is always plenty of food for that monster to devour and to consume in us more and more. Love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogance and being rude is very simply just thinking you're better than someone else. When you think you're better than them, you can be rude to them. You can treat them badly. To be rude, literally translated, means to be without grace. And we think of grace as extra. 
Like, grace is something nobody deserves. It's extra. They only, only the really good people are going to get grace from me. But rudeness is not showing grace to people. So anytime that you're not extending grace to somebody, you're being rude to them. And Paul says, don't do that. And when he says that we're not to be arrogant, that's hard. Why? Because we spend most of our lives in a competition trying to be better than each other. I just want to know that I'm better than most people. How about that? If I can be better than most people, then I know that I'm one of the better ones, and then I can feel good about my existence on this earth, right? Don't be arrogant, says Paul. Well, it's easy for you to say, my whole, my whole identity is wrapped up in being better than all these other people around me. He says, don't be that way. What would it be like if you were in a group of people and you didn't have to be better than any of them? What would that even be like? He says, love does not insist on its own way. Which means, even when it's right, it doesn't have to be right. Even when it's right, it can back down. When there's these two opposing things going at each other, one after another, that eventually someone just needs to choose to back down. And that love does not insist on its own way. It doesn't always have to win, even when it's right. It is not irritable or resentful. And this is the way that you treat someone after they've hurt you, after they've bothered you, after they've harmed you. You resent them. You hold on to it. You say, I don't have to forgive. I don't have to forget because they were wrong. And we all know and we all agree with it, right? And so we don't have to, we don't have to let go because who could really do something like that? But to love is to not resent and to say, I will let go and to not be irritable. And you know what it is? You know, what do we say about people who are irritable? We say, what is their problem? That's what we say. You're around an irritable person. You're like, what is your problem? And he says, a, a person who loves is a person who doesn't walk around with a problem all the time, ready to get angry, ready to get upset, ready to get stirred up at a moment's notice. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but in truth. And it is so sad and so strange. It's this strange paradox of being people that we actually somehow find satisfaction and pleasure in the wrongdoing of others. When bad things happen to other people or other people make bad choices, we actually take some kind of satisfaction from that. I think it's because, like I said, we want to be better than other people. And that's the easiest way to do it because you don't have to do anything. When someone else screws up, you're like, great, they're already, I'm already better than them. I didn't have to do anything. They just blew it, right? You wake up and you roll out of bed. You're like, what, what did they do? Oh, sweet, I'm better. All right, great, thanks for that. No effort on my part. You messed up. I'm better than you. That's a great deal. And we enjoy wrongdoing. We, we like it sometimes. And he says, love does not care, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. This is a full-time job. And if it isn't the priority in the church, then the church won't be healthy if it isn't the number one priority. If we don't live this out as the priority, when we care about the unimportant things and we fail to love, then what difference can we really make? How can lives really be changed? How can a family really be centered around Jesus? Simple, love. If the church is a place where people love one another this radically, then people's lives will be transformed. Then the church will have a lasting and real impact on the world around it. And why do we ask ourselves if the church is still relevant and still matters and can make a difference? Because much of the time, everything is emphasized besides love. And we see it, and we smell it, and it's not something that we like. Paul goes on and he describes it even further. He says, love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He's saying that, that, that no matter what is happening, love is the relevant thing right now. That even prophecies, which are teachings that were given to God's people, and and the prophets, they reminded the people of what God said in the past and how it applied to them now. Even not every single prophecy applied to every group of people in every situation, but love does. Times will change, circumstances will change, the culture around us will continue to change, but what doesn't change is the fact that the church is a place where people treat each other this way, where they love one another like this, and they love the people outside of the church in a way that is unique and radical. I mean, do we really believe that about the church? Do we believe that what is different about the church is its ability to love? It's, it's, it's ability to love even greater and more profoundly than any other person in any other group? Or do we believe that it's something else? We weren't called to be a group of people who all agree and who all want the same things and who all come from the same place and who all have the same tastes and who all like the same food and who all like the same movies and who all listen to the same music, who wear the same clothes, We're called to be a household that loves one another. And so this is what's true of love. First of all, it will cost. It will cost us time out of our lives to love other people sacrificially. It will cost us being right because we love when we're right and we love even when we're wrong. When you're the one who's right and you're absolutely convinced that you're right, you still love them the exact same way. And when you know that you're wrong and you've blown it and you don't know what to do, the answer is to love people even then. But to know that it costs. And I think the hardest thing about this is that when, it's, when we're honest, like if you were really honest with yourself and you were thinking about this, you would think about your enemy you would think about the person that you're the most upset with. You would think about the person who has harmed you the most deeply. You would think about the person who you absolutely can't stand right now in the church, and you would say to yourself, I have to love this person. Not in a fake, empty, showy sort of way. Not just with words, but I have to actually love this person. And Paul's really specific about what that looks like. He says this in the end, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We are not called to be people who are all the same in all the ways that I listed off. Here's what we're called to be as the church. We are called to be a household of adults, not children. You ought to walk into a church and feel like you walked into a room full of grown-ups. And not, I walked into a room full of children. And when we're honest, many of us, many of the churches that we walk into feel like rooms full of children. And there are times that we have acted like a room full of children. There are times that walking into the sanctuary of a church doesn't look much different than walking into a Sunday school classroom of a church. 
but what Paul characterizes maturity as, he says we are supposed to be grown up. That's what it should feel like. It should feel like I'm finally around the adults in the world, the people who seem to get it and get the way that we're supposed to treat each other. I don't know if you've ever had kids in the backseat of a car, but you don't expect the same things out of that backseat as you do when you have adults in the backseat of a car. If I ever forgot that I was driving adults and started treating them like my kids, it would not be good. It would be like lots of empty threats and yelling. It's all empty threats, totally empty threats, right? They'd be like, if these kids, if they were smart, they're, they're paying attention, they'd be like, he's, yeah, thank you. They'd be like, he's never actually pulled the car over. Has he ever pulled the car over? Never. He's threatened it a hundred million times. He's never pulled the car over. He's never going to pull the car over, right? But that's what it's like to have a backseat full of kids just be doing this and yelling and throwing stuff at them and stuff to, to keep them quiet, right? You guys have minivans. You have like multiple rows of kids to get stuff at. There's a difference between children and adults, and we know it so obviously, right? So what is maturity? Is maturity having lots of knowledge? No. Is maturity having been a Christian for a long time? Doesn't seem like it. Maturity, according to Paul here, being an adult, being a grown-up, is loving. Actually loving. Probably in a sacrificial way. Not because you're right and they're wrong, and now it's easy to love. But because Paul calls us to do that in a radical way. So why do we love the church? And it's because the church is a place where we can see love fleshed out. In fact, it's the only place in the world where we can hope to see love fleshed out. We cannot have this kind of love in our families if we can't have this kind of love in the church because we can't learn it from anywhere. I won't be able to learn it until I see it in the church. And I cannot bring it into my own home until I've experienced it here. We love the church because it's where we can be a true family. We love the church by how we treat the people of the church. I'm going to pray in a second, or um, I'm going to pray, and then Pastor Matt's going to come up, and he's going to explain communion to you guys, and then we're going to take communion as we worship, um, and you guys are going to take it on your own. But um, I, w- I went on a missions trip several years ago to clean up in Bayou Labatre, Louisiana, the home of Forrest Gump, and we were cleaning up from Hurricane Katrina, and the hurricane had been, it had been, a, it had been about a year since the hurricane. And me and these students, we were all walking around this neighborhood, and you, there weren't homes anymore. There were just um, floor, floor plans of homes. There was like carpet here and linoleum here and tile here and a hole where a toilet was here. That was all that was there. The hurricane just wiped entire neighborhoods off of the ground and left nothing but the flooring. And families were there living in RVs, living in tents, protecting their, their property and waiting to rebuild. And we were there about a year and a half after the hurricane and they said to us, everyone came here after the hurricane. And it was amazing. Every group of people, every kind of person, every group that wanted to come help helped. But churches are the only ones that are still coming. Christians are the ones that are still coming. And we were there helping trying to paint somebody's house or something. This is the way that the church is to be characterized. They are the ones that love more radically. Why? Because it's sacrificial. And why can we do that? Because of what Jesus did for us. Because he died for us. So we don't have to do anything for ourselves. We can love for each other sacrificially. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you. We are so grateful for what Paul tells us is true of the church. And our prayer is that we would be a group of people who are not known for our teaching or our worship, our children's ministry, our building, our bank accounts, or our history, that we would be a group of people who are known by how we love each other in the moment right now.
that people would walk into this church and feel like they walked into a room full of loving, compassionate adults, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. Father, the greatest mistake that we can make is to think that we have arrived when it comes to loving one another. Um, to think that if we have a history of that, that that means that that's who we will always be, Lord. Because we know that we are prone to sin and we know that the only hope we have is in your son, God. You have been good to us always. And that is why we sing. You have loved us more than we've ever deserved, more than we could even know that we could ever want. You have loved us. And the only right response to that is to be compelled to love abundantly, to love one another, to love the world, Lord. And our prayer is that, is that we would be transformed in this place by that love, God. And that we would go out and it would pervade into this city, into our schools and our jobs and our neighborhoods and our families, Lord. That we would be known for love, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys, have a great week.